All right, I've been sufficiently reminded now of my indwelling pride, and uh, I'm uh, <laughs> repentant of that, and uh, it's there, of course, it's there, it's there in all of us, I know, but <laughs> it is so good to be with you. Uh, thanks for thanks for welcoming me and my family again this Sunday, and, um, and Greg, Greg initially contacted me and said, yes, we're going through Ecclesiastes. Uh, then my heart just kind of sank like a stone. I thought, oh man, I've been trying to go for a long time without ever having to preach on Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I'm uh, personally had lots of uh, yeah, lots of struggle with the interpretive decisions about the book, but uh, it, it was really good. It was, I'm grateful for the opportunity and to, to get to wrestle through these things. And so um, thanks. It's so good to be with you and to bring you greetings from River Community Church and from my family to you. Let's go to God's Word together in Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're reading chapter 5 this morning, verses 1 through 7. So you might want to uh, grab, your, grab your Word and turn there with me, and we'll be looking at these verses in a little bit of detail. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God... Do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together and ask for his blessing. Oh Lord, no one, uh, as we're reminded in your word, no man can see your face and live. You are utterly beyond us. Altogether different. Supreme in majesty. To even dream of approaching you seems like a ridiculous fantasy. And yet you have made a way for us to do just that in Jesus Christ. You have had so much pity, so much love, so much tenderness toward us that you have made a way for us to not only even know about you or not only have revelation from you, but to know you, to know you intimately. And so we just pause to thank you and we thank you for giving us a word and we pray that even as we puzzle over its, its truth sometimes and we wrestle with the, uh, the depth that we find here. We ask for help now, Lord, and we are grateful. We trust that you will do good to your church, that you will bless us when we approach you in humility and in faith, when we come like dependent children asking God, Dad, would you please do good to us now? Would you please help us? Would you please build us up and encourage us and give us what we need 
to love you and grow in you and to have that intimacy with you and to worship you rightly as is your due and is our joy. Lord, help us and we trust that you will. We hold out our hands now uh, expectant to receive good gifts. So come now and bless us this way in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we have to deal with, I think, two words uh, as we approach this passage that maybe aren't everyday or regular words for us to use, uh, but they're important ones as we consider what the Scripture says about God, and they're the words imminence and transcendence. And they're probably not unfamiliar to most or any of you. Uh, the, by imminence, we simply mean the closeness of God, the nearness of God, His pervasive uh, being with his people and being throughout the entire earth. And, uh, and we love that. And we also have to deal with God's transcendence, by which we mean his uh, absolute beyondness of anything created, his separation from his creation and his, uh, his lofty majesty, which, as we see in Scripture, none can even approach. And we love God's imminence. It's so rich throughout the Scriptures. We've meditated on that and rejoiced in God's imminence this morning already as we've sung Him. I'm reminded of a few more passages too. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Or Philippians 2, 17 says, Christ, the second person of the triune God. Christ took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. God became flesh and dwelt among us. It doesn't get nearer than that. Or Colossians 1.17, it says, In Christ, all things hold together. Every molecule of the, the universe is held together, not by a God particle, but by Jesus Christ. So near is he to what he's made. Or Acts 17.27. I love this. Paul's preaching to this pagan audience and he tells them, he doesn't even mention the name of Jesus, and yet he says, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. He's able to appeal that to even folks who hadn't heard the Christian message yet. In him we live and move and have our being. Or the promise of Isaiah 7.14, that the Messiah to come would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we love this precious truth. It is absolutely needful. God is not just the, uh, he's not the, the indifferent, unlistening watchmaker God of deism, right? Who just wound up the universe, set some laws in place, and then poof, send it off spinning into the void uh, to go about its way as he sat off as a distant observer, right? It's not that. He's not just a force. He's not just an impersonal power that can be tapped into. He is God with us. He is intimately close to us. We love this. I love that ancient prayer, the Lorica of St. Patrick or the Breastplate of St. Patrick. You've maybe heard this or prayed this before. has that such a stirring declaration of this truth. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ at my right, Christ at my left, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks to me, 
Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Thank God. Thank God. And He is also a transcendent God. I love Jeremiah 23.23. He says, Am I a God at hand? declares the Lord. And not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? declares the Lord. Interesting how it classes God's omnipresence. His filling. It's almost like he's... he's um, riffing on God's imminence as a sign of his transcendence, right? I feel heaven and earth, so I'm also a God far away. You can't hide from me. I see everything, he says. There's no secret place you can go. Or Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, where he says his thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. Or maybe you think of uh, Job 38 4 through 41 at the end of Job after uh, you know Job and his friends kind of battle around, bat around uh, the theological volleyball for a while, wondering about how to, uh, how to deal with Job's calamity. And then God himself speaks at the end of the book, those uh, three or four chapters that are just uh, jaw-dropping in their, in their, um, their, their stunning um, declaration of God's transcendence, where the Lord comes to Job and says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? And on and on. And so we need both of these. And they're both, of course, so richly found in Scripture. And now in Ecclesiastes, we see how the transcendence of God in particular transforms our worship. How it transforms our attitude and our mindset and our heart the, the mindset of our heart as we come to reflect on Him and give Him praise. This is the first in chapter 5 now of Ecclesiastes. Maybe you've noticed this is the, the first direct exhortation of the book. Up until now, there's been a lot of rumination on the meaningless of self-indulgence and toil. There's been some looking straight into death's face. There's been some declaration of the joy that God gives. Uh, and, now, and now He comes, the, the preacher here gives us this this pointed declaration of what we ought to do, what we ought to think, how we ought to be. And it's primarily about, you saw this when you read this, it's primarily about not being a blabbermouth before the God of majesty and judgment. And there are three ramifications about worship, considering the transcendence of God. And so he enjoins on us. In verse 1, he enjoins on us the first thing, a learning posture. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. And so to go to the house of God, of course, would have reminded in the mind of any Israelite the centrality of worship. One of God's central components of His worship of the Old Covenant was that it was in a central place, namely the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem, uh, the house of God, God's presence especially dwelling there and uh, where he summons his people to come to meet with him and offer their sacrifices to him. In a post-exilic setting, as people would have read this, they would have thought of the local place of worship that they went to. And so, uh, and then, of course, we understand that through the ministry of Jesus, the house of God has been transformed not from a geographical locale, but to a spiritual community. 
the corporate body of all believers in Jesus Christ together. He says that in Ephesians chapter 2. And he says he's, he's building you, uh, he's building us all into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so, in some way, God has broken down the, the, the distinction between the sacred and the common, uh, the holy and the profane throughout the world now in Jesus Christ. He's made uh, his people, his tabernacle, his people, his dwelling place. And so whenever we are with God's people, when we are part of God's church, part of his universal church, we are in a, in a way going to the house of God. We are, and in particular, when we localize that on Sunday or when we gather together to offer our praise and worship to him, we are going to his house in the language of Ecclesiastes now. And, uh, and drawing together with his people to offer him praise. And so the writer says it's better to draw near to listen. Which also has connotations of heeding, of obeying what God says. He says it's better to, to draw near to listen than it is to offer the sacrifice of fools. It's a little difficult to know what he means by the sacrifice of fools. He doesn't really specify how exactly the, the fool is offering the, the, the foolish sacrifice. Uh, he perhaps means just as mere religious formality, uh, you know, without any kind of heart, uh, heart meaning behind the offering of those sacrifices. But at any rate, we can see at the end of verse 1 what characterizes the sacrifice of a fool. Uh, it's ignorance. Ignorance of what he's doing, right? Don't, it's better to, to listen and draw near to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. There, there, there's, no, there's no flicker, there's no flipping of the switch in the heart and the mind of the fool when they go to offer this worship of the Lord. They're just ignorant of what God wants altogether. They have no idea even that what they're doing is sin. Fools are so heedless, so naive, so thoughtless, so cavalier in their approach to the worship of the Lord that they can actually offer worship to God and yet the thought never crosses their mind that what they're doing might actually offend Him. What a disaster, right? What a terrible place to be. What a, um, what a place we want to avoid. We want to come when we, when we draw near to God to offer Him praise. Uh, there's a learning posture, a listening posture that befits God's people. I once, um, I once read the, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs' Uh, 17 sermons on the death of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. This is when Sally and me only had one child. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in, maybe you remember that passage, the Lord consumed the sons of Aaron, those two sons, uh, with fire. Fire came out from, from before the Lord and, and destroyed them because, the text says, they, authored, they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And uh, the text doesn't even explain what exactly unauthorized fire was. And at a cursory reading of that passage, it strikes us, and maybe as it struck their father Aaron, almost as arbitrary of God. But the point is clear, because the Lord makes it explicit through Moses. He says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Nadab and Abihu had approached the Lord foolishly, willfully ignorant of what God was requiring of them, charging headlong in their ignorance. And the Lord did not accept that. And so here the preacher urges us, don't be a reckless, thoughtless worshiper. 
Don't be ignorant. Don't go in blind. Don't, uh, don't be unaware of what the Lord wants you to do. And we might apply this to us further today by considering our own hearts, our own attitudes when we join in corporate worship. I wonder, do we anticipate corporate worship at all? Do we give any thought to it? Is it sort of like a, an add-on? Something we tack onto the schedule. Sometimes, you know, something that we think, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, Sunday. <laughs> right. Is it an incidental? Do we consider seriously what songs we will sing? What prayers we'll pray? Do we come expecting a joyful encounter with God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit? Guard your, guard your steps, the writer says. And another thing he enjoins on us, verses 2 and 3, is a terse and respectful prayer life. Terse and respectful. He expects that we're going to talk to God in prayer. He says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So his counsel is, remember that your words reveal your inner state. Right? How you talk, what you say, How much of it gushes forth. That reveals something that's going on in the heart. Don't pile up words and superfluous talk. Be mindful, he says, of the distance between you and God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Again, that call to remember the transcendence of the Holy Lord who is utterly beyond us. And because of that, he says, you don't need to pile up the words. Isn't it? So fascinating how similar this is to Jesus' own teaching in uh, Matthew chapter 6. Remember he, uh, when he's teaching his disciples to pray. And, uh, and he says, when you pray, this is Matthew 6, 7 and following. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. See, a confidence in the transcendence of God, that He knows everything before you even ask, that leads to this. That leads to this just this childlike, uh, this childlike trust that, yeah, God knows. He knows. I don't, need to, I don't need to implore and implore and implore and heap it up and heap it up and heap it up. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? Remember, remember the distance. Remember God's holy otherness. He is your Father in heaven. Verse 3 is supposed to, verse 3 of chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes is supposed to illustrate verse 2. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. It's supposed to illustrate verse 2, but I'm not entirely clear on how it does. Uh, and there's some real translational difficulty too and exactly what's going on here. Uh, the best prospect I found in, in reading through some commentaries and whatnot is, is the possibility that when, when, he, when the writer speaks of a dream here, he's talking about losing one's grip on reality because you're so busy, right? Because of business, getting lost in work. You're dreaming. You've lost it. Your head's in the clouds. And if you approach God thinking like he's more inclined to hear you when you babble on and on and don't have this firm resolve to trust in his transcendent nature, then, uh, then, then you're, you're dreaming, man. It's, it's bonkers. There's, there's, uh, <laughs> and it's just going to make you pile up your words uh, like a fool's voice. 
Now, all this doesn't mean that you shouldn't speak free with, with God. Like a daughter does with her daddy when she knows her daddy loves her with all his heart and she trusts him. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray with an awareness of our blood-bought intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. I don't even think it means we should never pray long prayers. Jesus, after all, prayed many nights the whole night in prayer. He enjoined his disciples, stay up with me and pray. Watch that you might not fall into temptation. And so I think what Solomon is getting at here is it's more about a heart posture, a firm conviction that God is glorious and powerful and mind-bogglingly good and that we, on the other hand, are profoundly mortal and needy. And we're the ones who receive. He's the one who gives. And so when you come to the Lord in prayer, you're coming to the High and Holy One who inhabits eternity, then our prayers ought to reflect that in some way. And if they don't, then they're going to be glib and same old, same old, and piling up words for the sake of it type of prayers. And close relational intimacy with somebody doesn't preclude reverence and respect either. Maybe you're wondering, isn't there some sort of disconnect between really knowing and loving someone and also being reverent and respectful before them? And no, those two things aren't contradictory. They don't necessarily butt heads or are at odds. In fact, I would argue that it deepens it. Our Uh, the nature of our our relational intimacy with God through Jesus Christ actually deepens our reverence. Maybe you hear this and read this and think about these things and perhaps some of you have had overbearing fathers who thought too highly of themselves and too highly of the difference between them and between you and they demanded absolute deference and they enforced it with physical abuse. And that's different. That's different from the reverence enjoined in the Bible. Because God's transcendence, His greatness, His grandeur is ripened and made even more sublime by the depth of His love. By the depth of His sacrificial, self-giving, rights-renouncing, mercy-laden, covenantal love. And it's shown even to traitorous enemies and rescuing us from slavery to sin and from certain doom. A third thing that, that we're enjoined here in our worship of the Lord in, in light of God's transcendence is in verses 4 through 6, and that's caution in what we promise God, right? When you make a vow to God, don't delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools to pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay, right? And so another way that our mouths get us into trouble is when they reveal a hasty, disrespectful heart that isn't mindful of the greatness of God, Because we vowed something for him, but we didn't really mean it. And probably the vows that the preacher envisions here are pledges to give a monetary gift to the temple as a gesture of gratitude to God for hearing one's prayer. Um, Maybe you think of uh, the story of Martin Luther, the great reformer, right? When when he uh, was on a trip once and was caught in a disastrous storm. Remember, he famously cried out, Help me, Saint Anne, I shall become a monk. Right? In other words, Lord, if you deliver me, I, I promise I'll give this to you. I will become a monk. Well, thankfully, uh, for um, the world of Christianity, thankfully he, he made good on that vow. Um, and the Lord, of course, had some other work to do in his life too. But, um, and so and we often make pledges like this to the Lord, or in, in other days we might have uh, you know, made, these, made these vows of... Uh, 
of giving a gift to the Lord uh, in thanks or in pledge of uh, him hearing our prayers. And then verse 6 says, Let not your mouth lead into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? And it's a little bit weird to know what exactly is being talked about here with the messenger because uh, maybe your, your translation has a little uh, drop-down footnote that says the messenger or the angel. It's the same word in the Hebrew there uh, for messenger or angel. And so there have been lots of kind of creative understandings of what this messenger means. But the most compelling thing to me is probably that this simply means an officer of the temple who would come around to collect on vows that were being made, right? The one who would knock on the door and say, hey, by the way, uh, um, <clears throat> the records show here that on 4-3-2017, uh, you, uh, you, you pledged a vow to the Lord, and, uh, well, we've come, to, come for you to pay up. Um, now, we don't have any record of that office anywhere else in the Bible, so that's a little bit speculative. But that's what seems to make, make the most sense to me, as, as I think contextually. And then he goes on and says, Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? In other words, God would hear your, your vain declarations of, Oh, I'll do this. Oh, I'll do that. Oh, I'll give this. Oh, I'll give that. And then not back it up, not stand behind that and keep, keep your pledge, keep your promise. And so then he would be angry. That would upset the Lord. He would destroy then the work of your hands and of course the work of your hands plays such a big part in Ecclesi- throughout the book of ecclesiastes in terms of what we're um, what is a gift of the lord for us to take joy in as we work uh, with our hands before him and this attitude of the heart expressed on the lips that we don't really mean what we say to him really gets his goat we can't just spew on thoughtlessly and think it has no consequences. It reveals a vanity and an emptiness of the heart. And we get this personally because it upsets us when other people do this, right? We get angry when we get something from Amazon Prime and it's different from how it was described, right? I paid $23 for that spatula and it wasn't a number six oblong helioid shape. Now I have to return the dumb thing. I need that shape arg right it should, you know it said that right in the description or when friends say oh yes i'll be there next week to help <laughs> and then they're perhaps not there and then we see them later and they offer some weak explanation oh oh yeah i don't remember i think we had something else come up that day oh oh such a letdown right it's so discouraging we should take heed about what we promise god when we say, God, I'll go wherever you call me, that's good. And we should mean it. And when we say before the Lord, God, I will love and cherish this woman or this man for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. We should be absolutely clear-sighted in our sincerity. And when we sing lines of songs declaring what we're going to do, I will worship, I will follow you, etc., then we should follow through. We shouldn't sin with our mouths and let them be at odds with what our heart is calling us to say. And then verse 7 finally summarizes for us. When dreams increase, when words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. So again, when dreams increase and words grow many, it seems like those are 
uh, parallel synonymously with each other. In other words, when you're glibly ignorant of the reality of God and who He is and your mortal stature before Him and, and you babble on and on, then that's vanity. It's emptiness. It's a dead-end way to live. We shouldn't waltz through life with this agnostic sort of willy-nilly attitude toward God and eternal things as if how we relate to God and how we talk about Him are inconsequential. They're not inconsequential. It matters. It matters what you think about God. It matters what you say about God. And it matters what you say to God. If your image of God is one of absolute total imminence without transcendence, as I would argue that maybe the church in North America has an issue with, a problem with. We love the imminence of God, but we're not so in tune with the transcendence of God. If that's your image of God, then you'll speak and act like God is just one of us, just a stranger on a bus. He's a God who's close. He has lots of warm fuzzies. He's really affirming, but he's ultimately powerless to actually help and save us. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, but God is the one you must fear. When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Loose-lipped babbling and rashness on our part, that ultimately reveals in us a low esteem of God. But the preacher urges us, approach God with mindfulness of His supremacy. He is not a God who can be trifled with. He is not a God who can be ignored or outsmarted or overpowered. I think of uh, the first Avengers movie, the only Avengers movie I've seen, where, of course, uh, Thor's brother, um, Loki, uh, right? Is like, doesn't he say something like, how dare you mess with me? I am a god, you know? And, and the Hulk grabs him and kind of tosses him around like a beanbag toy and, and throw, casts him aside and says, puny god, right? That's not our god. Our god isn't one competitor among many. He's a God who sees, a God who hears, a God who knows every thought, every intent of the heart, a God who cannot be escaped. And Solomon says, remember, you're on earth. We, on the other hand, are so contingent. We're so fragile. We're like delicate butterflies. We're here today and gone tomorrow. We are easily stopped, easily confounded. If the humidity goes up, I complain like I'm in the gulag, Right? I can't breathe, you know. All it takes is one slip on the ice, one crack of the head on the frame of a car getting in, one gradual clog in an artery, one negligent millisecond behind the wheel of a vehicle, and we're gone. We can hardly go a month without food. We're battered around by our emotions and our hormones and our moods like so many ships tossed in a storm. A new argument that we hadn't contemplated before. That totally arrests us. It shatters our confidence. Or a callous word. It bites so deeply into us that we'll remember it decades later. We can't even turn a single hair white or black unless we're cheating and we use a dye and that's only temporary. And even while in Christ, we have become partakers of God's nature and brought so near to Him, there is yet a difference between us and God that we would do well to be mindful of. God has no beginning. He has no end. 
He is perfect in his happiness. He is unchangeable in his purposes. Perfect in his goodness. All-consuming in his holiness. Limitless in his creativity. His foolishness, Scripture says, is wiser than any human wisdom. He is unfathomable in his love. His mercy is matchless. And like I said, that intimacy we enjoy with God deepens our respect for his transcendence. Because in the most mind-boggling plan, he made an end to all our sin by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And it says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What God could do such a thing? What God could transform his enemies into adopted sons and daughters? What God could satisfy the demands of perfect justice through his own self-sacrifice? What God could promise us life forever in a new heavens and a new earth? Only the true God. Only the God of the Bible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to know Him, to fear Him, is the only hope of a man or woman or child for true and everlasting joy. And to hope in anyone else or anything else is utter vanity and emptiness and meaninglessness. And so I just conclude with the the words of Romans that lead us to contemplate the transcendence of the Lord. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let me pray for each church. Oh Lord, bless Emmaus Road Church this morning. Bless these friends, old and new. Bless me. God, bless us that we might come to grips with the reality of your utter majesty. You're far beyond this. And even as we enjoy that closeness of friendship and reconciliation with you through Jesus Christ, and we give you, as rightfully so, we give you thanks and praise. Help us, Lord, to be deepened in our respect for you as well, and our reverence, and our holy awe of your greatness and your grandeur. You are beyond all other gods. You are high and lifted up. None can compare with you. And so we bow our hearts before you in gratitude and in gladness and in gravity alike. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.